Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Episode 5 of the Power of the Patient podcast. I'm your host, Dave DeBroncart, known on the internet as ePatient Dave. That ePatient word means patients who are empowered, engaged, equipped, actively involved in doing everything they can that take an active role in their health and their care. In 2007, being that way helped me survive a near-fatal cancer. And since then, a lot of people have asked me to share what I know. That's what this podcast is about. Before we start with this episode, I have a question. If you've been listening, are you hearing what you want? Some people have left five-star reviews for the podcast on iTunes, which is great. But another friend called and said he wants quick tips, not some lecture that's like an hour-long radio show. How about you? Are you hearing what you want? What would you like? So please head to the podcast page on my website, epatientdave.com slash podcast. Scroll down to the bottom and leave a note in the comment box. Thanks. We'll be back with Episode 5 with the phenomenal Dr. Victor Montori of the Mayo Clinic and the Patient Revolution and author of the book, Why We Revolt, right after this word from our sponsors. For most consumers, the search for a healthcare provider is a frustrating maze of bewildering choices and unanswered questions. And they really want to hear what other patients have to say in order to make a decision with confidence. With Loyal's Empower Solution, you have the tools to do just that, empower your patients, the patient, and provide a solution, maximizing star ratings while introducing deeper insights into what patients really are saying about their experience. You could sort, approve, and publish patient reviews of physicians, services, and even practices using some of the intelligent features like auto-approval and syntax highlighting. To learn more, visit them online at loyalhealth.com. Hi, I'm here today with Dr. Victor Montori, one of the doctors in the entire universe that I respect most, and I'm sure knowing him, now humbly is that he's probably blushing beet red at that right now. I was actually on his radio show several years ago at the Mayo Clinic, and I've followed a lot of his work, and I continue to. He is, among many other things, the founder of patientrevolution.org a revolution for careful and kind care, a a concept that I completely love, and the author of the companion book that just came out a few months ago called Why We Revolt. Welcome, Victor. And why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you got this way? Well, first of all, it's a wonderful pleasure to be in your program, Dave. And again, uh, if one looks at the universe of people, not patients in particular, but people in general that are making a difference through advocacy, through clarity of conviction and voice, you stand at the top. So it's a real pleasure and a real honor to be here. I am an endocrinologist. I take care of patients with diabetes. I'm a researcher um, uh, and have a research uh, team that works on figuring out how might we improve the, the capacity of the healthcare system to be patient-centered and provide patient-centered care. And as you said, I co-founded and am chair of the board of the Patient Revolution, a nonprofit uh, focused on changing healthcare through stories, through conversations, towards careful and kind care for all. What led you to do that? It's not the most obvious thing for an endocrinologist to do. 
Um, <laughs> I could just take care of people with diabetes all day. Is that, that what you're suggesting uh, that I should have done? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. One of the one of the opening stories, a lot of people I know consider the book and the patient revolution to be focused on American healthcare. But one of the opening stories in the book, why we revolt, if I recall correctly, is from uh, your days. You're from Peru, correct? Yeah. So I, I, um, I think the fundamental reason to proceed with the, the the nonprofit and the book, first of all, the nonprofit is the a labor of love that is a result of work that the Warburton family has been doing for a number of years. They are from Ohio. Dr. Warburton, uh, now deceased, was a, a fabulous community doc whose patients loved him. And he was dedicated to improve the way patients were able to use the healthcare encounter, the healthcare visit, to their advantage. And and Dr. Warburton developed a, a little black bag for patients that included three things. One was a, a form that patients could use to organize their thoughts and organize their questions in preparation for the visit. Another one was a was a uh, tongue depressor. You're gonna love this one. A tongue depressor <laughs> with a with a with a stop sign on it at the top, so that if the doctor was uh, speaking jargon or talking too fast, the patient could just raise the tongue depressor with a stop sign, so that the doctor would slow down and uh, and speak more simply. And wow. and then the third piece of the uh, little black bag for patients was a postcard of a dog with uh, bunny ears. And it was to remind patients to bring an extra pair of ears to the consultation. So based on, on that uh, tradition, Mr. Warburton approached us, and we've been working now for the last uh, three, four years in work that now has concluded in forming this organization uh, focused on improving the way patients and clinicians, uh, cities and healthcare systems and the people and their state uh, have discussions about how healthcare ought to happen. But my personal journey, as you pointed out, started as a medical student in Peru. I I was a medical student at the time. Peru was uh, ravaged by hyperinflation on one end, which is the phenomenon by which you open up your newspaper and you see produce advertised on the newspaper, but without any prices, because by the time, the, if they had printed the prices, at the time you go to the supermarket, the prices would have been very different. And they'll mm-hmm. for, so forget checks or credit cards, everything is a, becomes a cash economy. So it's hyperinflation. And then uh, we had terrorism with car bombs and, and murders and uh, carnage. And it was, it was a very hard time for the country, made the poorer, poorest, and made those uh, with least, uh, least uh, fortunate and unable to, to run away, had to suffer and endure through that. And, and to be a medical student in that context with almost no resources in, the, in, the, in our hospitals was uh, quite striking. And it was, it was uh, now in retrospect amazing what we were able to do with the little we had. And I think to, to find that you come to the, the richest country uh, on earth and to find that patients cannot get the care that they need and want because although the resources are in the system, they're being siphoned out by those who pursue personal riches and profits. It's, a, it's, a, it's immoral, it's a disgrace, and it's an outrage. And I think that's, that provided the voltage for me to embrace a revolution. So in what sense do you mean uh, revolt? I know you talk about a revolution for careful and kind care, but I don't, I, I don't picture having read the book. There's a great quote that I told you at the time when I read the draft was fascinating to me, and I've, I've actually made a printed plaque out of it. It says, 
Healthcare has corrupted its mission. It has stopped caring, and I'm not going along with it. It's time for a patient revolution to bring about careful and kind patient care for all. And I added to that my own observation that I know physicians who feel exactly the same way. So it may be that it's a time for patient and physician revolution. How did you reach the conclusion that some sort of revolution is needed? And in particular, what kind of revolt, if you're not talking about people marching in the streets and throwing Mm -hmm. rocks? Yeah, so I do not know why you're ruling that last thing out. I think that the, um, first of all, let's start from the beginning. We have a, a if we imagine healthcare as a system, which of course it's fiction, right? We don't have a healthcare system, but we, if we were to imagine it for a second as a system, I, I have proposed a notion that this, that system is no longer designed primarily to provide care, but rather that system is primarily designed to satisfy an economic goal, our industrial goal. It's an economic sector is 17 to 20% of our GDP. Many states uh, rely on healthcare as the primary employer uh, for that state. So it's an economic engine. Mm -hmm. And if you now Mm -hmm. zoom at the level of patients and clinicians, uh, one of the things that you see very often is that patients and clinicians are factory workers they are co-creating on a good day, co-creating care. But then once they that care is packaged, they turn they turn that package of care and they show it to the payer, and ask the payer, "Is this good enough quality? Is this low enough cost? In other words, is this high value?" And the payer gives the thumbs up. They're all happy. If the payer gives the thumbs down, oh, we have a problem. We're providing low value care. So instead of the accountability being to, did we solve the problem of this patient? The accountability being, did we serve this patient? The accountability is, is turned towards those who are to make uh, to make or lose money with the way we, 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 we deliver care. In that way, healthcare primary mission is no longer to care, uh, at least not to care for patients. So in that way, it's corrupted its mission. And I don't believe that we can uh, clean that up, fix it, by simply changing, uh, by simply pointing it out and maybe changing a few policies. If you mm-hmm. build an economic sector where people make a lot of money out of the way care is, um, is uh, delivered, the way care is produced, and that money instead should have been put into care, if people are making a lot of money out of healthcare and people simply are being left out of that care or left out of particularly expensive care, or if care is made expensive because people are expected to make a lot of money out of innovations, for instance, and then the benefit of those innovations is only limited to those who can afford it, all those things indicate that the primary goal of healthcare is no longer to care for people. So when you see that, you're basically asking the question, how might we change the underlying assumptions, the foundations for such a system? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're going to change the fundamentals, it's not going to be through reform of some of its manifestations. It's going to be by removing those fundamentals and replacing them with different fundamentals. And that, to me, means we need to turn away from healthcare as an industry and turn towards mm-hmm. uh, p- uh, careful and kind care which assumes, I think this is a fundamental assumption of this work, that careful and kind care cannot take place by design consistently and for everyone in a system that is designed uh, on the basis of greed and profit rather than the basis of solidarity and love. So I couldn't agree more. And I'm, I'm in kind of a, what I hear is an unusual position. You know, a lot of people get into advocacy 
as a result of having been screwed by the system in one sense or another, or having seen a relative suffer unnecessarily by things like that. I mean, I, uh, I on the other hand, came into this having been saved by the best of healthcare. So in a sense, I represent what's possible when careful and kind and brilliant and excellent care is allowed to happen. But I'll share a couple of uh, anecdotes that I've learned about in the last couple of years. For those who don't know, I've participated in over 500 events in 18 countries in the last eight years, either speaking or participating in policy meetings and hearing lots of stories. And I've been in this inquiry to figure out what the heck is going on here. How is it that medicine saves so many lives, so many more than 50 or 100 years ago, and yet so many perverse things continue to happen? Two particular anecdotes from people I know. One is in the U.S. healthcare system, there is an intermediary sort of company that has sprung up called a PBM, a pharmacy benefits manager. And they say to an insurance company, hey, we will offload everything about prescriptions from you. We will handle it all. And you will pay us based on how much money we save you. So to the insurance company, it's a win-win. The deep secret that most people aren't aware of, even employers, I've realized, are not aware of when they switch insurance companies, is that the PBM may not allow drugs that people have been getting. In my case, I have a friend in my chorus that I sing in whose employer changed insurance companies, and all of a sudden, his wife, who has multiple sclerosis, is no longer allowed to get the only drug that works for her. And I'm sure that the people, perhaps with some cruel exceptions, but that the people who make these decisions and certainly the people who work in all these companies have no clue that this cruel consequence is developing out of the managers in the companies thinking, how can I optimize my return on investment for my board of director and the shareholders. Well, so, so, so Dave, I think what you're describing is, uh, is something that we have put in the book, which is that, that and I, I too, both personally and in my immediate family, have benefited from healthcare. But I think we all have heard the stories and, and, and lived the stories that sometimes healthcare is able to care beautifully, uh, almost by accident. And, and there, are, uh, there are situations where it is cruel, but when you look at the situations where it is cruel, everyone, as you just said, everyone is doing their job. So if I work exactly. for, an, for, a, for a for-profit company I, and I make decisions that improve the profit, I'm doing my job. Um, or if I, I adhere to protocol, if I adhere to protocol to the, to the T, despite these consequences, I'm doing my job. Um, and yet there are moments because healthcare is the beautiful thing about healthcare is people that go into healthcare for the most part are people that want to help, are people that want to make a difference. And sometimes the system in which they are does not let them do it. And they go a little bit out of their way. Exactly. They go a little bit out of their protocol to make a difference. And in a study that we did at Mayo Clinic, when we looked at moments of deep human connection, Dave, the moments of deep human connection we observed in all instances were described as people getting out of their way. So if people have to get out of their way to, to achieve these moments of, of care, that means that the way is designed 
not necessarily to make that a default result of it. Exactly. And so exactly. to go back to your initial post point uh, that you think this is not just a patient revolution, but a revolution of clinicians, I think that we could say very confidently that the system is fundamentally cruel by design, incident, and, and, and cruel not necessarily by purpose, but this is a result of its, its, its design, uh, to not only patients and their families, but also to clinicians, which explains why, you know, one in three, one in, one in two clinicians are experiencing burnout. Yes. Another example, and this is one that touches my heart very deeply. Uh, There's a phenomenal, generous orthopedist named Howard Lux, L-U-K-S, who just shares all his knowledge extraordinarily. He blogs about it on his website, and he gives it away on Twitter. And he replaced both of my wife's knees two and a half years ago on the same day in an incredible operation. And I told him I wanted to blog about this because of how well it worked out. And he co-edited the blog and put in everything about how he does it, the eight distinctive things he does. Both knees were placed in one day. She didn't take a single unit of blood. She was out of the hospital and in rehab two days later. And five days after the OR, she was discharged to go home. Uh, And 17 days later, we were out playing miniature golf with no cane, no nothing. He just has this nailed. Of course, this method isn't appropriate for everyone. Well, he tweeted me the other day saying that he's now being interfered with with by another type of intermediary company that has offloaded from the insurance company the claims approval process. And they have twisted a new CMS Medicare, Medicaid regulation, CMS says now sometimes knee replacements can be done outpatient. And so now this claims company is refusing to pay for anything except outpatient. Uh, And it completely frustrates him. It breaks his heart that he's not allowed to do the intensive initial recovery work that he did with my wife that produced this terrific result. So, and uh, again, it's, it's frustrating, heartbreaking, and demoralizing. So I guess we've answered why we need a revolution, huh? Well, yes. And I think, but it also highlights how much, uh, how entrenched it is in our understanding of how healthcare works, that he feels he has no way out because the payer, in this case, a representative of that payer, uh, holds him accountable to a particular kind of practice. And he yeah. no longer responds to patients like your wife. Uh, she, he fundamentally has to respond to this organization. So that is what I mean by the corruption in its mission. Yes. And, and, um, and, and, and I'm sorry, but I, I just don't see reform uh, fixing that particular problem. Well, so let's move on because I know there's a, a there's got to be a brighter end to this podcast, even if it's one that does involve people marching in the streets. But um, you know, you and I have joked about one idea I had for the name of this podcast was "Revolting Patients," but which has has different connotations than I intended. But as with everything, I said it with tongue in cheek. So, given that you started the organization, was there a particular additional? push that you felt was needed that led you to decide to write the book? Yeah, no, the book is different. Ah, gosh, the book is this is this incredible thing. Um, so um, I, re- 
I have read a lot of authors who, who tell you stories about how what they wrote um, almost had a life of its own, had to be written, uh, you know, and they were just kind of carrying it, but it had to be put on paper. And um, I have to say that I, I thought about writing about what we had learned in our research program about 2013. And I, I wrote an outline for that work around that time. And then I tried to write. And every time I tried to write about our research program, I found myself writing about the challenges of uh, healthcare as is. And and mm. I would try to correct course. I would try to turn that off and turn on, you know, the discussion of the technical aspects that we've uh, we've learned and the kind of accomplishments we've had over the decade of work. And then it will pop right back again. And so it that process went on for about two and a half, uh, three years. And in about 2006, I gave up and all that, and I just let it all come out. And what came out was the stories that I didn't know I was carrying and these uh, strong uh, ideas and feelings about the unacceptability of the current situation and the need for fundamental change. And so the book, Why We Revolt, is really just a download of, of stuff that uh, is not the scientific uh, stuff that I've been working on for decades, mm -hmm. but much more closely to what has been accumulated in, in my heart, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, for this period of time, and that I, I felt an obligation and urgency uh, to share, and of course, uh, with the uh, fear and, and, and this sense of notion that the world probably didn't need it, but I had to take it out and out of me and, and put it out there for other people to 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 play with, and it's um, so that's where that came from. Well, and I, it's funny because when somebody hands you a book called "Why We Revolt," you know, you tend to think, "All right, this is going to be a bunch of angry stories and arguments about how we need to have an uh, an uprising." And there wasn't a trace of that in there. It was soft spoken heartfelt and a lot of stories without a lot of, uh, you might say, intellectual deconstructing of the rationale of why an uprising is needed. So, but, that, and that's, that's one of the things that's intriguing and somewhat seductive to me. I mean, when you look at the patientrevolution.org website, it doesn't exactly look like, well, I mean, the classic example, as we've discussed, is a few years ago, the British Medical Journal, now known as the BMJ, had a cover story titled, Let the Patient Revolution Begin, and it had a blood-red revolutionary fist with a hospital wristband around it. But that's not the mood of the website or the book. But, but they, let's ahead. just play with that for a second. Okay. So uh, one of the... One of the one of the things that I think I struggle with is when I talk about a revolution and we talk about these things, um, and you you just did it a, a few minutes ago. You say, oh, people out in the streets with their sticks and stones, and, ha ha. But, but gosh, I mean, I think we've lost, you know, the spirit of revolt. I mean, there are things right now that are completely unacceptable going on. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're not in the street, not simply marching, but demanding fundamental change is surprising to me. And um, and I think I think of this, the, the idea that healthcare can be just made a business and everybody has to tolerate it, that, that to me is, is, is calls for the same kind of response that racism called in the 60s when the civil rights movement went on. 
And the same kind of challenges, the same kind of sacrifices, the same kinds of, of struggles. And it, I think it will take generations to turn this, this thing. That's why one of the last chapters in the book is about cathedrals, because that's the one thing I could imagine people used to do that would take generations to build for then everyone to be proud in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and I, so I just want to make sure that, that, that I'm very clear. This is not a gimmick. I don't think of mm-hmm. revolutions as a funky word that is kind of nice. I actually mean this. I actually mean that we really need to upend the fundamentals of healthcare to make it about patients again and to make it about care. So I just want to clarify that. Well, and, and I agree. I mean, I think today of some of the pressures, the, the doctors and nurses who saved my life, I'm quite aware of the extraordinary training they all went through to get the licenses they have. And in my case, I was in one of the most desperate kinds of cancer situations there is. Beyond that, they went through extraordinary work experience to earn those higher level promotions. And I want them, number one, to be able to use that experience to achieve care I mean, care includes both the medical and the human caring. I mean, they took care of me while I was dying. And they've since said they like it when I come back for a follow-up visit because most of their patients don't survive. Yes. I can, I can barely imagine working in a situation where almost everyone you touch doesn't make it through. Hey everybody, this is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information, and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. But now let me shift gears because the listeners for this podcast, I hope, will be people outside my usual healthcare conversation circles, and, and including, you know, that I refer to the my buddies in the chorus that I sing in, my high school and college classmates who've asked me, so what's this you're doing with all this healthcare stuff? For a family in need today, a family who has a sick kid or a sick elder, or they're just managing chronic care, what should somebody do, given the insights that you've learned, to get the care they need for themselves and their family? Yeah, that's a very hard question. I think that there are some some things that perhaps are helpful. First of all, I think it has to, at the personal level, is the idea of focusing very, very intently on health and recognizing that health is not to take supplements or or do or engaging any of these kind of gimmicks, but really health is is companionship, is love, is being with each other, is pursuing your hopes and dreams in, in cities, in environments in which you don't feel threatened uh, personally, where your integrity is not being questioned or asked to be questioned by your employer and so forth. So there's, there's a component of health we need to recognize very, very intently, which, ha- which has nothing to do with healthcare and has to do everything with the conditions of work and the conditions of living that 
on, on which we may have more or less control. So that would be one thing I would pay close attention to. And if you look at your own city, become active in shaping how is it that your city uses its resources? Are you having adequate parks? Is it safe to walk outside with your partner at the end of the day? Do you have adequate recreation? Is there enough opportunity for the arts and so forth? That's health. Uh, healthy food and, and activity and in companionship with your fellow humans. So that's one thing that I would I would want people to pay attention because they have a lot of control over that um, as opposed to perhaps healthcare. And then turning into healthcare, hopefully if you do well the first part, you need very little of the second part. If you get into healthcare, then if you have a choice, which sometimes you don't, but if you have a choice, look for uh, healthcare offerings in the current environment, a healthcare offering in which your clinicians are salaried rather than being paid uh, per uh, visit or per uh, operation. Look for environments in which those same clinicians are not being incented for performance or volume in any way. Look for environments in, in, in which the, the clinics and hospitals are not just simply nonprofit, but, but in fact, they are, it's very clear that they're mission-oriented. And that's tough to know. But I have to say that sometimes you walk into a place and you can tell. I don't know if that's just my calibration or, or, or what, but sometimes you walk into a hospital or clinic and you can tell, are, are these people celebrating themselves or are these people really motivated to, by serving others? I remember walking into a clinic once and in the waiting room, there was a big sign that said, we have 90% of our diabetic patients with a, on a cholesterol medicine. Help <laughs> us reach 100%. And what's, what's dramatic about it is not that it's a, it, of course, it's a nice quality improvement language and so forth, but it's the patient has to help the clinic meet the quality target so they can get paid better. It's inverted, right? I mean, that's the most obvious example of that inversion in accountability. So if you see signs like that, you probably want to run away. This place is about themselves. It's not about you. Again, my concern, of course, is that if you follow this advice, you may find yourself without a, a place you can trust and a place you can get the care that you need. And that's why we just can't you know, navigate through it. We have to change the system. You know, uh, another thing, avoiding needing the system is essential and, and it's, it's achievable and you may have to work to find a better environment to live in and things like that. But I know when I started going as part of my own weight loss, when I was diagnosed as pre-diabetic, I ended up joining the local YMCA and it cost me $30 a month, but it's the only opportunity where I live to be able to exercise year round. And I needed to find ways to put time in to go there. I mean, the, yes. the benefits have been terrific. It really is, in a sense. If somebody's in a situation like we've been discussing where revolution may be needed, then self-defense involves staying healthy enough to, you know, just it's like stay away from the edge of the cliff. And, and yet still, we have situations where people are hit by cars and they need care. One thing I yes. try to teach people, because I find if I scare people with too many horror stories, uh, they just shut down. They can't cope with it. They just end up honestly hoping that nothing bad happens to them, which is actually disempowering. Yes. But to uh, what, what I encourage people to do is be aware that the system won't necessarily help you in your best interests, even if the people want to. Mm -hmm. 
to just be aware, ask lots of questions, uh, and keep your eyes open, and sometimes fight back. You and I both know many cases where somebody is un- truly unfairly billed for something, and if they ask enough questions and push back, which they shouldn't have to do, but right. you know, I'm not talking about long-term futures. I'm talking about somebody who has a need today. I have, have heard many stories of people successfully getting charges reversed. So. And I think that's the, so one of the things that we talk about in the book is about the burden of healthcare on people. And of course, in addition to yes. how disorganized care is and how many treatments sometimes are necessary to expect that healthcare should work under the fuel or, or, or through the uh, engine of patients who are now essentially being delegated with the task of proofreading the bills, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or proofreading the record and things like that. I think it's extremely unfair and again suggests that it's not uh, operating in the patient's best interest, but rather the patient is just one more employee, one more uh, factory worker in this industrial healthcare uh, machine. Um, so I think that I think your point is well written, well, 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 well taken, Dave. And I think that, for instance, your own advocacy about uh, open records and, and giving people uh, access to their own data, I think is, uh, is right on. And it's an example of advocacy within the system as is. But it's only one step away from, from the positioning that, that we are taking. Um, and I think a good synthesis of both positions might be to move from give me my, my damn data to give me my damn care. And I think if we can get care back, uh, if we can get the healthcare system to shift towards care at its primary goal, give me my damn care, might be the crying, uh, the cry of patients and clinicians who I think want to participate in healthcare when they have to because they think they're going to be better off. Yeah, I, w- I want to say something about that for listeners who don't know the expression. Victor is not the sort of person who out of nowhere would start saying damn. But uh, <laughs> I, it, well, in April 2009, I did a blog post about garbage I had discovered in my medical record. There were billing charges in there for all kinds of conditions I never had. And I accidentally ended up on the front page of the Boston newspaper and people started asking me to give speeches. And for the first one, Gunther Eisenbach at the University of Toronto, who organized the event, said, we need to know what your speech is going to be titled. And I had no idea. My life was spinning out of control. So I just said, I don't know. For now, just call it, give me my damn data because you guys can't be trusted. And amazingly, it stuck and it became a thing. And now it's a music video. It's, it's funny. The music video was produced by this great doctor named Ross Martin and his wife, Kim, who is a four-time cancer patient. They're more polite than I am. And they, in the video, they changed the dam to D-A-M, data about me, which it is. I mean, that's the whole point. It's data about me. And yet, just to tie this all up, uh, Harlan Krumholtz, a great Yale cardiologist, gave a talk at the Connected Health Conference in 2016, where he recounted talking to a hospital system executive. And this is something I think everyone just needs to be aware of that this stuff goes on. He He's trying to put together an app that will go get your data from all your different doctors, clinics, fitness apps, whatever it might be, into a single picture. And this hospital executive in Northern California told him, Harlan, you don't understand, and I'll I'll post a link in the show notes to this 
clip of exactly what he said. You don't understand. We have a concept, a marketing concept of affinity. We don't want patients to take their business somewhere else. So why would we help them do that? People, you need to understand there are people who don't want you to have control of your healthcare. And I think that's perverse to repeat Victor's quote, healthcare has corrupted its mission. I think that hospital executive should not be be allowed to be responsible for healthcare for millions of people, which I believe his system is. So, so Dave, there's a hopeful note that uh, you, you were th- pointing out before you went to strike. And I just gave, I had the opportunity to speak to a room full of master's in healthcare administration students at the mm-hmm. University of Minnesota a couple of weeks ago. And they had just heard a case study of a primary care system who uh, had everything going for it, including enormous patient satisfaction and clinician satisfaction. The clinicians were salaried. They were not on uh, incentive pay. Um, The patients could use as much primary care as they needed. Uh, That included support for healthy living, coaching, and so forth. And they were not crowded, and it was a very good model, and they were making money, and they were being very successful, and they got shut down because they were not making enough money. So they didn't satisfy the greedy monster to a sufficient level. So uh, everybody was kind of, you know, upset about this. And and then I got to speak and uh, I spoke about the patient revolution and, uh, and moving from greed to solidarity and moving from incidental uh, uh, cruelty and accidental care to a system based on integrity and love and, and elegance and um, and I thought, what am I doing? You know, I'm talking to all these administrators. Uh, you know, this is a waste. And then there was time for comments and questions. And the comments and questions moved me. One of the administrators told the story that for the last few months, he had started to cap- capture stories that came to his, uh, I think it was LinkedIn or, or, or Twitter, Twitter mm-hmm. feed that involved uh moments of hum- of love between humans who had not met before. And he was using these stories of love to disseminate this ac- across his management team as something that managers wow. shouldn't worry about. I didn't know this was going on. You didn't know this was going on. Somebody in different positions of power within the system feels the same way you and I are feeling. The possibility of change is inside. We have infiltrated the system because this this system is made out of people and people in their hearts of hearts knows what we're talking about, knows what's important, knows, but they are forced because they have to make a living. They're forced to, to play the game. Can you imagine? Maybe this is one of those, you know, healthcare springs. If we just moved it a little bit, if we just pushed the envelope a little bit, can we not tip the scale? Can we not see the statue come down? Can we not build a better, a better widget, a better healthcare than in this case is one that actually cares as a default? Um, I think we can. What it will take, I think, is for patients to stand up. And that's why, you know, it's funny, at the beginning of my TED Talk, the first words out of my mouth were, it's an amazing thing that we're here to celebrate the year of patients rising. And in conversations about subjects like patient access to the medical record, one of the most frequent objections that I hear from 
clinicians and policy people who don't want to do it is, well, all right, Dave, you want this, but you're abnormal. My patients aren't asking for it. And to me, that's exactly like the people who voted against women's suffrage in 1912 in the U.S. And one of their top bullet points was 90% of women aren't asking for it. I think it is time for us all to stand up and say to the individual worker bees in the clinics and to policy people in Washington and hospitals and state governments, we do want careful and kind care. We need to put an end to the perverse incentives that stop doctors, patients, nurses, clinicians from doing what everybody knows care should be. Uh, There is a um, uh, yes, and I think there is an angle here that uh, might be important to also rescue. And that is that we have the systems, uh, we have the political system, and we have the sort of uh, market system that we have in place because we have the society that we have in place. And I think one of the things that the book, you know, Why We Revolt uh, does at the end is it brings it back to the kinds of societies that give birth and support the kinds of organizations that you and I would like to see fundamentally changed. Hmm. And and so as we call for, for careful and kind care, in the book, we also talk about the need of having societies in which we worry and care more deeply about each other. Um, and, and your listeners can, can Google pictures of uh, the hurricane rescue workers in Houston. And there's a particularly interesting video of an elderly man trapped on a, in a van as the water is rushing through. And a chain of citizens, one holding on to the other, rescuing this man from the van, saving his life. Mm. These were these were not first trained first responders, as far as I can tell. They look like regular citizens coming together to save one of them. That we see that a lot in in, in moments of of challenge, in moments of of, of disaster. But it should become the way we operate on a daily basis. And, and the book makes, makes, the, makes that case. And I would like to um, maybe read a little bit to your audience, if that'd be okay. Sure, if you've got the time. Yeah, I'll just do it very quickly. And it's towards the end of the book. I'm talking about the different kinds of um, cathedrals that, that we need to build, you know, pointing out the importance of, of building things over many generations, perhaps, if that's what's necessary. But I'm, I'm, I'm struck by a kind of cathedral that occurs in Spain in, in the Catalonia area in which uh, these are these are made these are essentially human pyramids and mm-hmm. the whole town regardless of ability comes together and everybody has a role and they build these enormous human pyramids and they 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 and they they compete for who can get to the top and and, and make the tallest one and there are different arrangements one of the arrangements is called the cathedral and it's a very tall arrangement so and uh, oh, literally! Oh, so you you really mean human pyramids of humans, correct. like cheerleaders, hundreds. Making, but but it, oh, okay. I thought you were talking about like the Catholic cathedrals. No, no, it's ma- it's made. No, 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 no. This is this is a, a human pyramid with okay. hundreds of, hundreds of people, and um, and they usually have thinnest uh, and 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 shortest people get to the top, so that you know they're they're easy. Good. So the kid, the yeah, the kids actually go to the top, and and this structure is particularly interesting because if, for instance, if it were to fall. Then everybody kind of cushions the fall for the people that are they're, they're falling. But if also if they get to succeed, everyone participated in making it a success. And so I think it's a wonderful metaphor. And so the book uh, has this this uh, paragraph in it. 
This castel, which is the name in Catalan of this pyramid, this castel mm -hmm. is almost finished. The last one, a precious child, is climbing to its top. Her parents, holding on to their fellow castellers at the base, trusting everyone else, await nervously for the music to signal their daughter's arrival to the summit. They are enveloped by a deep sense of care for and about each other. They are surrounded by love. As she climbs, that little girl will not feel lonely. As she stands at the top, she will not think she got there just because of her own effort and courage. For if she were just to look down, she would see everyone in the village, her whole world, holding her, raising her, helping her touch the moon. And how fitting that we've ended up finishing with a true story of rising together. Well, that kind of gives me goosebumps, Dr. Montori. You got a diagnostic code for that? Uh, I think it's time for a revolution, sir. So this is E-Patient Dave and the wonderful Dr. Victor Montori bringing to a close this episode of this podcast, which perhaps indeed we shall see. Maybe this is the year of patients rising. Thank you. Please stick around for one more moment. I have some important final information right after this message. This show is made possible in part by the Social Health Institute. Through research and partnerships with healthcare organizations around the country, the Social Health Institute explores new and innovative ways for hospitals, healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategy. To learn more about the Social Health Institute, visit them online at socialhealthinstitute.com. That's socialhealthinstitute.com. Boy, you've got to agree that Victor Montori is no normal doctor, huh? What experiences have you had getting health care? Are you experiencing what he says we should all have, careful and kind care? Or are people just too busy? Are your doctors and nurses happy about how things are going? On my podcast page, please click the link for this episode 5, because I've put a lot of work into gathering links for everything we discussed today to help you learn more. And if you're like me, you'll also want to click over to Montori's discussion with Dr. Vardabedian's podcast, The Exam Room. The link is right there. So he goes through the same book, but from the doctor's perspective. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and come back and bring friends. I'm very frank about my reason for doing this. I just want to change the world in ways that matter to you, the health consumer. So does Dr. Montori, obviously. It really is about improving your power, the power of the patient. Thank you for listening. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.